0: I decided to give you my objectives before we start so you know where we're going. And it goes like this for those who are taking notes. Every child should be aware of our expectations because our expectations makes God our assistant, not our Lord. The second one, every child can prepare for the unknown by daily dialoguing with God, living by faith, and being still enough, and being still enough to have that stillness and silence impact our lives. And the third, the child of God weathers the storms of life because God is with them. God is sovereign. So I was thinking of storms, and the last storm that I remember happened in 2006, so I wanted to see who I was speaking with. So if you moved to Florida, after 2006 would you raise your hand? after 2006. Now with those hands raised, did any of you ever experience a hurricane? Okay? Okay, put your hands down. Now I'm going to ask for those who've been here a while, how many of you can remember back to Hurricane Andrew? Raise your hand. Okay, put your hands down, and you remember all the adjustments that came after that storm. Now, if you remember back in 2006, we had our second major hurricane, at least that I can remember. Because I used to look at hurricanes as a time of excitement. I used to actually get an adrenaline rush. This is exciting. Go to the, the supermarket, run and get water, run and get food, run and get batteries. This is pretty exciting. And when you're a school teacher, generally there's no school. So this is heaven on earth. And so, Boy, it was no big deal. And I remember when Hurricane Wilma was coming, some people said, "Ah, uh, we haven't had a hurricane in a while. It's not coming. But I'm smarter than the average person. I sat down, I looked at that chart because they used to give you charts, and I said, I don't see that thing turning. I said, Barb, I'm going to go. Now, for those experienced people like us, we know the difference between a hurricane watch and a hurricane warning, and we know about the, the hurricane extreme wind alert. We know those things. That gives you 48 hours, that gives you 36 hours, and that gives you one hour. But I was ahead of the curve. 70, 72 hours I was at the store getting ready. 72 hours before that storm I was putting up shutters. One of my neighbors goes, what are you doing? I said. Wilma! Wilma's on his path. Ah, they haven't said that yet. There's been no warnings. There's been no watches." I said, ah, I know better. And so I was prepared, and I felt pretty good about myself, saying, I like hurricanes, there's no school. In fact, one time there was a hurricane watch or warning where they canceled school, and it was a beautiful sunny day, and the hurricane went out and hit the Bermuda. So I'm thinking, I'm ready, let it bring it on. The only problem is, when there's hurricanes, some people really prosper, don't they? A good friend of mine owns a screen company. He's looking forward to hurricane season. It means millions for him. Home Depot, that means a lot of lumber, a lot of pipes, a lot of shutters. For some high school students, I know one high school student was getting paid $200 just for putting up the shutters, and another $100 taking them down. It was really profitable, but then Hurricane Wilma came. And as we go through this message, we're going to get little excerpts from what happened with Hurricane Wilma. The first point in my message today is the truth. The storm is coming. God does not bail us out. If you would turn to chapter 1 of Habakkuk, it says, the oracle of Habakkuk the prophet saw." Well, Habakkuk, we don't know anything about his background. We can surmise from chapter 2 verse 1 and chapter 3 verse 19 that he probably had two roles. He was that of a temple priest, a temple priest who would pronounce blessings, a temple priest who would hear the people and offer up sacrifices, and a temple priest who would lead in worship, and that it was his duty as a temple priest to stand in the, the gap between the people and the temple. We also see that he was a prophet, and that his name means embracer. That he, like an embrace, was a sign of affection. That he had a heart that was affectionately towards God. So in verse 1, you can see what he's doing. Having that heart for God, looking at the culture in which he's uh, living in, and he says, How long, O God, will I cry for help, and you will not hear? or cry, violence, and you will not save. How long will you make me look on iniquity? See, the culture at that time became to a point where people were getting mixed up with that term grace. See, in Exodus, it's real clear. In Exodus, in the book of Exodus, you have the story of redemption. You have deliverance. Then you have the law, obedience, and then you have, what? Blessing, in that order. Deliverance from the bondage in Egypt. Deliverance, or the law at Mount Sinai. By the way, Mount Sinai was further from the Promised Land than when they left through the, uh, the sea. Sinai was actually further away when God told them about obedience, and then the Promised Land, the blessing. One commentator said that really, the blessing is already for the children of God, but not yet. You already are in position to receive that blessing, but fully, not yet. And so the people of God at that point were just going through the motions on the externals of prayer, of worship, of tithes, of offerings of sacrifice because they became almost like what we call an entitled person. What's an entitled person? Is that something new in our generation? An entitled person says, I'm not responsible for my life. I'm a victim. Things have happened to me. That is often motivated out of fear. The second characteristic of a person who becomes entitled is that is, hey, I'm going to take charge of my life. I'm going to be successful, I'm going to get the job done, and I'm going to make things happen. And that's pride. Fear and pride produces entitlement. Fear and pride will keep you from doing a lot of bad things. Oh man, what will happen if I get caught? What will people say? Fear. Is it motivated out of a love? Is it motivated out of an embrace for God, being his child, being fully known and fully loved? No, it's based on fear. What would people do if they really knew me? The second one, pride. I can do this. I really don't need God. I can sacrifice. I can do tithes. I can worship. I can do all those things. And the thing is, God said, deep in their hearts, the people of Israel were just going through the pretense of something external, but not, nothing transformational in their hearts. Why do you say that? Jeremiah was a contemporary of Habakkuk. And in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, a very familiar passage in which Jeremiah is talking about the people of God in Judah. He says, for my children, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. And they have worked hard at hewing out a cistern, a cistern to hold water, but it's broken. See the people were doing the religious activity, but their hearts were not for, I love God, their hearts are, I want to be blessed. I want the blessing of God. And if I can do this and this and this and this, then I'll get blessed. See, they were entitled people. And so when Habakkuk looked at these entitled people, he says, God, when are you going to come into the situation? They're not being responsible. They are full of fear and they're full of pride. But they're not full of the embrace of a loving God who has delivered them, a loving God who has delivered them to obey, to be his example in this world, and to a a blessing of the promised land that is there in principle, but not fullness. And so Habakkuk asked God this question in chapter 1, verse 5. Look at what God says to him. Look among the nations and see and wonder and be astounded. For I'm going to do a work in your days that you would not have believed if I told you. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Yeah. Bitter? Yeah. Hasty? Yeah. Vicious? Yeah. Cocky? Yeah. Full of pride? Yeah. As a coach, time out. Can we have another dialogue now, God? Now, I was saying, yes, as entitled people, we're doing things not from a hard position in which we know that we are loved, and because we're loved, we're able to be free to serve. Okay, but what you're saying and what you're suggesting is something that I'm not prepared for. How can you, God, he goes on to say, and says, Your eyes are too holy, your eyes are too pure to look on the sin of man. How can you raise up the Chaldeans? Well, then I started thinking about the Chaldeans in the Bible. So wasn't Abram a Chaldean? He's a pretty good guy. Oh, and then I read another passage in the Bible Job, remember the Chaldeans and came in and killed his sons? Okay, that's not so good. Ah, oh, the Chaldeans. Oh, oh, Belshazzar. You remember him? After, after they ransacked Israel and Jerusalem and took all the gold, remember he says, hey, while he's with his friends, bring out that gold that we got from that temple god. Yeah, let's have a party. Let's rejoice. Let's endure it. And you, what we all know is it brought down his death that very night. Wow. The Chaldeans. Isn't that where... Iraq is, the Chaldeans, ruthless, impetuous people. These people, look on verse, uh, what is it, Verse, verse 12 of chapter 1. Uh, Maybe it's verse 10. And they look at kings and scoff, and rulers make them laugh. They laugh at every 45 city. They pile up earth and forsake it. They sweep by the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might, whose own pride, whose own talent, whose own gifts is the cistern that does not hold water has become their God has become their idol. And Habakkuk says, why? Sometimes the question, why, would be better asked, how? I read this one quote. It said in this book, it says, you know, John Calvin said, Jesus' life was a life that was full of sorrow. Born illegitimate. Born on the bad side of town. Best friends betrayed him. Best friends turned his back. Best friends fell asleep in his time of need. And then on the cross, why, my God, my God, have you forsaken me? And Jesus, he says, entire life was the cross. But in America, in our society, in our culture, sometimes we have expectations that control our experience. We expect our life to just be blessed. I'm doing this, God, I'm doing this, don't I get blessed? And we want the blessing, not the blesser. And so in Habakkuk, he's saying, God, I'm going to stand by, verse 2 of chapter 1, I will take my stand at the watch post, I will station my step, my, myself at the tower and look to see what you will say to me, and I will answer you, be answered by your complaint. See, as the priest, they would always stand at the steps. After their morning worship, the priest, the temple priest would stand at the steps. The temple was behind them, and they would hear the concerns of the people. And he says, okay, God... I'm going to stand outside your temple, and I'm going to see what you are going to do out of this horrendous experience. What are you going to do?" And this is what God answers him. He says, basically, hunker down and secure and prepare your home. See in a hurricane, you're given time to hunker down. You're given time to get your preparations. You're given time to get one gallon of water for each day for each person in your home. You're hunkered down to get at least three days provision of food. You hunker down by having your hurricane shutters or your hurricane windows, and now you wait for the storm. But how do you wait for that storm? How do you wait for that storm? Verse 4 of chapter 2 says how we wait behold, the Chaldean soul, he is puffed up. It's not right. But the righteous will live by faith. Faith is not to atone for our sins. It's rather to bring us to Christ. Christ justifies us out of our union with him, and therefore we can love others by faith, and so fulfill the law of God. Love does not justify. Faith brings us to Christ, Who is our justification? Who makes us right with God? It's not our righteousness, it is His righteousness. If love could be justified, then you and I would be justified by our good works. And he says in chapter two, Habakkuk. This is the Magna Carta for the Christian faith. The just will live by faith. Ah, Abraham the father of many, was justified by faith. Abraham, when he made the sacrifice, he never took the oath. When the darkness came down, the light, the pillar of fire, went between the sacrifice. In that darkness, God took the oath to Abraham and he said, Abraham, If I break this oath that I'm making to you today, if I break my promise to you, then I will die. Abraham, you are not taking this oath. You are going to watch me. If you break it, Abraham, I am going to die." And we know that that was fulfilled when darkness came over, And death came on Christ, and the burden of our sin were placed on him. That our righteousness, our justification is in him, not in ourselves. So the first thing he says uh, to, to Habakkuk is, the just will live by faith. The third point, when you hunker down and you prepare, well, the first point, a storm is coming. The second point, we hunker down and secure and prepare your home. The third point is found in verse 20 of chapter 2 the silencing of the storm by the still of the quietness of life. Look what it says in verse 20 of chapter 2 But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Psalm 46.10 says, be still and know that I am God. Isaiah 30.15 says, in quietness and trust you will find strength. Psalm one-thirty-one, two: surely I have stilled and quiet my soul. Stillness precedes knowing. This summer, my wife and I were up in a Indiana for a retreat. Good friends of ours said, hey, go to this retreat center. Friends of us are the directors. You'll love it. And I'm thinking, well, how much does it cost? They said, ah, just give them a donation. Okay, I can handle that. Okay, we'll check it out. A little cautious but not thinking much of it. And we get in our car, we travel from Chicago to this retreat center, about six hours into Indiana. I have no idea where we were, just where once we got there, I noticed my cell phone had zero bars. After we checked into our rooms, I'm looking for the remote, and there's no television. There's no internet. There is no cable TV, and all of a sudden I'm like, this is going to be a really short stay. (laughs) And then I started thinking, no one knows we're here. No one. Our kids? No one. I started like, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? And really, I felt quite unsettled at being still. I felt quite unsettled not being connected. And I thought, this is not comfortable. And I remember telling my wife, let's go to the town so we can at least text our kids and say, hey, we're not dead, but there's no cell phone service. There's no, you know, internet. There's no, you know, mail. So, so, so don't worry about us, but we're going to be off the grid for about two days. Whew. Okay, not bad. Silence. There's this place. It's called Anagot echoic chamber, I think Microsoft has it, it's supposedly 99.99% quiet. They say that when you're in this chamber, after a few minutes, people fall down. They lose their sense of balance. They say after a few more minutes, people who, once again, got upright, start hearing their inner organs. It's so quiet, they can hear their heart. Thum thum. After a few more minutes, they can hear their lungs filling up with oxygen. And it sounds pretty cool at that point. But they say once you cross over that initial excitement, they say people start hallucinating. People in that utter silence start hearing voices in their heads. And they said the longest anyone who's ever been in that chamber was 45 minutes without going nuts. See what what Habakkuk is learning is he is learning about that being still isn't idleness. He is learning that being busy is not good. I have this quote from Martin Luther because we all like Martin Luther quotes. I have so many things to do today, said Martin Luther, I dare not ignore my quiet with my Lord." See, sometimes when we're experiencing awe and intimacy with God, in this Western society where we're not unplugged from all the things that are just hammering us, we see this as hard work. It's tough to be quiet. One time I did this in my seventh grade Bible class, and I said, hey guys, can we see how long we can be quiet? The first class, before someone spoke, 15 seconds. <laughs> and I said, okay, that was the next experiment. Let's go on with the lesson. Oh no, Ms. Riley, come on, Mr. Riley, give us the second chance. Give us the second chance. I said, if you can be silent, it's a spiritual discipline. I know it's not really popular in the church today, but, you know, there is a discipline of silence, a discipline of silence of your eyes, of your ears, of your sound. You know what I'm saying? There is that discipline, but it's kind of lost. Oh, please, Mr. Riley, give us one more chance. Okay, I'll give you one more chance. Forty-five minutes later, they were quiet, and some were asleep. (laughs) And when I woke them up, <laughs> I was glad the administration didn't come in. And I thought, they said, wow, I used to hate in that time. That was really good. And honestly, some of us have forgotten that. That awe of experiencing that quietness, that solitude. Not loneliness, because we're all lonely. In this world, we are very lonely people, but solitude and silence, to be there long enough to hear the voice of God. We all know the Bible stories where God was not in the earthquake, God was not in the, the fire, God was not in the wind, but God was in that still, small voice. And in the Hebrew, it says it's like the dust hitting the ground. That's being still. That's where you're now dialoguing with the Creator God about things in your life that you cannot control. This is when you're recognizing you're the creature and He is the Lord God. In that still small voice, His Word jumps out at you, His Word starts giving you that awe that regardless of the circumstances, that regardless of your feelings, regardless of how things are going in your life, you know you're fully loved, you're a child of God. You are embraced by the Creator God through Jesus Christ that you can go before the throne of grace not in your name, in your strength, in your fear, but you can go before Him in the name of Jesus Christ in which you can say, God, help me, have mercy on me and be there long enough that it makes an impact on who you are in the inside. See these people, the Chaldeans, they didn't care about God. The people of Judah, they didn't care about God, they just wanted the blessings. And yet the faithful remnant understood the importance of being still and silent and allowing you to hear that work of God in your heart that will make such a mark in your life that it will change you from the inside out instead of from the outside in. But it doesn't end there. See as you know that the storm is coming because we're in a broken, fallen world, as you are prepared by faith in Christ's justification. As you're prepared to have that time with God, put aside all the busyness, put aside all the pride and all the things that make you feel good. Those cisterns that you work so hard that do not hold any water because you have forsaken the fountain of water, the fountain of life. And at that point, he says, we get to the third chapter, once the storm is over. The freedom after the storm. The freedom after the storm. If you were here for Wilma, some of you were without electricity for eight days. Some of you were out electricity for 15 days. I had one particular student who was out for 21 days. I remember that so clearly because my next-door neighbor, Andy, is a prepper. And he had everything for 10 years. He had enough gasoline. He hooked up his house, my house, and our neighbor's house to his generator. It wasn't just one of those little Honda generators. This thing was huge. No one was going to walk away with his generator. And so we're in there. No one else in the neighborhood has electricity. And my neighbor's outside with an electric hedge trimmer. in his hedge because we don't have school." And I said, Jim, what are you doing? I was well, I have nothing to do. I'm hedging. I said, don't you think that's going to irritate some of the people in our neighborhood? That you have electricity and you're hedging your, your hedge because you have nothing else to do? He goes, oh, I didn't think of it that way. I said, well, maybe you ought to be thinking that way. I don't know. So my wife got this brilliant idea. She put out a sign, free coffee. And so, man, we had 10 of our neighbors who we never saw a moment in our lives come and say, hallelujah, thank you for the the coffee, thank you, thank you, can we pay you? My wife is going, no, no, I'm going, yeah, 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 (laughs) I can profit from this, you know? (laughs) She's like, no, no, it's our pleasure to serve you, I'm thinking, what the heck? Supply, law and demand, and the people came. But not only that, about two days into without electricity, everyone in our neighborhood got together. And and the people got together and said, Hey, I have this turkey. It's It's thawing. Mind if we cook that? This other guy had this, you know, trout. He goes, I got this up in North Carolina. It's thawing, can I cook that? Another guy had salmon, can I cook that? Another guy had steaks, can I cook that? And there on our driveway, in our community, everyone was laughing, having a good time cooking together. The freedom after the storm was incredible. The trees were knocked over. The fences were knocked over. The screens were all over the place. But the community was together. And see, in chapter 3, look what happens to Habakkuk. Lord, I've heard the report. And your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Verse 16, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly, again quietly, wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. His circumstances got worse, but he was free in his heart, in his soul, in his mind. How? Look at the next verse. Things outside the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit on the vines. The produce of the olive fail. The fields yield no food. The flocks will be cut off from the fields, and there will be no herd in the stalls. This is not a pleasant circumstance, just like Hurricane Wilma. It wasn't pleasant to be without electricity. It was not. But what it did is it brings that insight that only rough times bring. How we have taken for granted, and our worship of God has become a form, an obligation, an ought to. Instead, I get to worship the loving God who loved me and His righteousness is bestowed on me. I worry because I forget your wisdom. I resent because I forget your mercy. I covet because I forget your beauty. I sin because I forgot your holiness. I fear because I forgot your sovereign. Yet, verse 18. I will rejoice in the Lord God, the creator, the infinite, eternal, immutable God. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. What gets us out of that? How can we take away? Maybe someone's in here and they're kind of a Babylonian, a Chaldean. "Hey, my life is what I make it. I'm successful because I work hard, I'm intelligent, I get the job done. And you your pride, and what you do with your hands is your God. Or maybe you're kind of slipped into that. I love the blessing of God. I'm entitled. I, I'm entitled, I, I don't want to take responsibility for why bad things happen to me, I don't want to offend God, I don't want to do this because I'm afraid, or I'm going to do these things, I'm going to do righteous deeds, I'm going to do these acts of mercy, I'm going to do these things because I want the blessing. Full of pride. See, what God does to break us of our entitlement sometimes is he brings in wellness. He brings in those hard times, not because he does not love us, not because his discipline is unjust. He comes into our lives to make us understand the essentials of the Christian life is not found in the things that we do. And he breaks down those idols. And most of us don't break them down very easily. And some of us are kind of like Habakkuk. We've been looking around, saying, why aren't you doing this work over there, God? Why aren't you doing this over in that other person's life? And God is saying, Habakkuk, it's not your righteousness of being a priest, it's not your righteousness of being a prophet. Your righteousness is by what Christ has done on your behalf. And now, be silent. Be still. Make sure you know that He loves you and you love Him, not for the blessing. The blessing's going to come. In principle, we have it fully now, but it will be experienced in fullness at the new heaven and the new earth, and that's future. So what that brings us now is that when you understand this, after that hurricane, there was a guy who was in a wheelchair. I don't know who came knocking on our door, he says, I know you have some sons. I know you're kind of big. I didn't know how to take that. He goes, can you help us? The trees have trapped this man in his house. We ran up to, the, the, to his house, and all of his trees blocked the front door, the garage door, and the back door. And so my sons and I and a couple other neighbors started pulling and pulling and pulling, until we freed up the front door. And the guy was so happy. He goes, can I pay you? Can I do something for you? And we're like, no, we're, thank you for allowing us to serve. Thank you for allowing us to help you. Thank you for allowing us the joy, regardless of the circumstances. We don't seek the blessing, we seek the blesser.